Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. The text that we have chosen is a snippet, basically, in the life of Jesus, and it's found in Luke chapter 13, and it's verse 22 through 30. And in this context, as, as we've read, Jesus is confronting or being confronted by some individuals who are asking a question. And that question is, are there few that are saved? Now, I, I want to begin by saying that this is probably an elliptical statement. And by that I mean that some part of that statement has been left out, but it belongs there. And that, that statement is, is that ellipsis is found in, in the question. So when they said unto him, at verse 23, Lord, are there few that be saved? They're probably saying, are there few of us that are being saved? And the reason I say that is, as, as you read on down in Luke chapter 13, and I'd advise you to open your Bible and, and uh, follow along with us in this text. In Luke 13, he, says, I say, he said several times, he's addressing these individuals who are asking that question. And he's, the individuals that are asking the question are not going to be included in those that are saved, but they're saying, are there few of us that are saved? Now he says, I say unto you, you will seek to enter in and you not be able. Then later on he says, they're going to come to come to me and say, Lord, open the door. And I'll say unto you, I don't know you. So he's actually referring to the individuals who are asking this question. And the question has to do with whether how many of them are going to be saved, not how many overall are going to be saved. The, the Bible is a wonderful book and it's a, it's a complete book. So when we look at this text, and, and we're, we're seeing some individuals, disciples, are saying, Lord, are there few that are being saved, or few of us are being saved? And Jesus is saying, uh, you're, 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 gonna, you're, you're not going to get in, is what he's saying. And he's saying, you're not going to go in, you're not going to go in because of certain factors, and yet you're going to want to get in, and you're going to say, wait a minute, we have a right to be in. And he's, then he's going to say, no, you don't have a right to be in. And then later on he'll say, here's what it's going to look like, that you're not going to be included. Now, I know that's harsh, but still, that's, that's basically what Jesus is saying. And he's talking to these people. And we have to keep that in mind when we're reading the New Testament, 
that he's talking to individuals at that point. Those people who at that point were surrounding Jesus and had that background behind them of the uh, religion that they were involved in, that was the Jewish religion or religion of Israel. So they came from a backdrop of people who felt like they were entitled to be saved. And so that that takes us clear back to the time of Abraham when God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he was going to bless him and his progeny. He's going to bless all those that came out of Abraham. And he was also going to bless everyone through Abraham, that is, all the nations. Well, the people that the Old Testament was written to began to get the idea that they were the only ones that were going to be favored of God. And they they really resented the fact that when Jesus came, he didn't select them and single them out and say, okay, you are the favored ones and therefore you're okay and you can just come with me wherever I go. He didn't tell them that. And that aggravated them. And so as you read the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that on several occasions, Jesus comes into conflict with these people who actually believe that he has no right talking to anybody but them. So when Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, they didn't like that. They thought, well, we're the ones that you should be speaking to and talking to. Well, that was not, of course, the the purpose of Jesus. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And in that context, then, we we look at uh, several periods of background, and we, we have to look at the backstory of this in any of the New Testament texts. When we read about the life of Jesus, we have to look at the backstory. And the backstory was that God had been preparing a time when Jesus could come and establish a worldwide kingdom in which his son would be the king, and those who obeyed him would become part of that kingdom. And he became known as, basically, in the New Testament, Jesus became known as the kingdom because he was the king. And everyone else involved with him would be part of that kingdom. Now, all through the Old Testament, there was a thread that was being woven. And that thread was that there was a time coming when God was going to judge the world. And if we look at what he's saying here in Luke chapter 13, that's what these fellows are concerned about. They're wondering, how can we avoid the judgment that's coming? Now let me let me read a couple of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of the judgment. One is in the book of Psalms in chapter 1, and it's probably familiar to most people who read the Psalms. And in Psalms chapter 1, he talks about a judgment that's on its way. And just I'm just going to read these six verses. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. Now there's our word. The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. 
And you'll find that thread running throughout the law and the prophets coming to Jesus. And that thread is that there is a judgment coming. And that's what these fellows were concerned about. They were concerned about that coming of the judgment. And Jesus is telling them, they're saying, are there few that be saved? So what they were wanting to do, they were wanting to get inside that bubble they thought that God was going to develop for them and put them inside a shelter so that when the judgment came, they would not be, be judged and condemned and they would not have to suffer. That was, that's basically what they were wanting. They were the warning. They wanted to get into what we would call a bomb shelter. They wanted to end with Jesus somehow so that when the judgment came, it would pass over them and not affect them. Now read with me another passage, if you would, in Psalms chapter 91, because it pretty well defines the attitude that they might have. And that attitude was, Lord, take vengeance on all the ungodly, but protect us. In Psalms chapter 91, at verse 1, it says, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. Surely He will deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings thou shalt trust." So they wanted to get under the wings of God. They wanted to get under His shelter. And when they were asking Jesus this question, basically, that's what they were asking. They knew that judgment was coming. And as a matter of fact, Jesus promoted this while He was on this earth. He said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, He says, I say unto you that every idle word that, you, that men will speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. So they were anticipating a judgment. And again, in Mark chapter 9, at verse 42, it says, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it was better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. If your hand offend you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus was addressing a people from the time of Abraham forward until the time that Jesus came, he was addressing a people who were under the pressure of a coming judgment. Now, we could just leap ahead to this real, real quickly, just for your and my confidence, and that is that when the judgment came, it fell upon Jesus. But there was a judgment coming. They didn't know that. They didn't know that the judgment was going to be executed upon Jesus. But they did know that a judgment was coming. Something was going to happen. And there was a tension among them. You know what a tension is? It's like when water builds up behind a dam. And it puts pressure on the dam. And the more water builds up behind it, the more pressure that is. And when that dam finally gives, then there's a disaster. It's like when you take a spring and you load that spring and you put pressure on it and, and put tension on it and get it ready until finally when it gets enough tension on it, it will spring forward. Now that's it, it, just a simple illustration. We used to have watches that you had to wind up. What you were doing, you were winding up a spring. And when you turned it on, then the spring began to move the, move the dials on the watch. And if you look at, if you have a garage door, if you, or if you know anything about a garage door, garage door has springs on it. 
And what you do is you load those springs when you put the garage door down. It loads the springs with tension. And when you release it, the springs will pull the garage door up because the tension is released. These people in the days of Jesus were under tension. They were under tension. They were afraid that a judgment was coming, and it was. And that's what they're concerned about. And they're saying, Lord, are there few of us that are going to be saved? In other words, we need to get under shelter somewhere. We need to get into the bomb shelter. In World War II, before World War II, actually, in, in London, uh, they, the uh, authorities there decided to build bomb shelters, but they didn't get them built before the bombing raids took place by the Nazis. But they knew that they needed to have shelters. And so they used improvised shelters during the bombing of London during World War II. And, and there were signs around that pointed to these shelters. And when people heard the planes coming, they ran for the shelters. They wanted to get under the shelters so that they could be saved. Now that's what was going on here. The tension was in the air. As a matter of fact, there was enough tension as Jesus moved toward Jerusalem and the time began to get narrow and Galatians 4, 4 said, God in the fullness of time sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. The tension was building and building and building and you could probably smell the ozone in the air from the thunderstorm that was about to break over this nation. Now they did not believe that they were going to be a part of that destruction. But they believed that the nations the Roman government and others, other people who were not of the Jewish faith were going to be judged. And they wanted to stay out of the way. We don't want to be part of that. So they were asking Jesus, how do we get in the shelter? How do we keep from getting destroyed? And he said, you need to look for a gate. <laughs> and that's, that's basically... Uh, his, his concept here, he said, strive to enter into the gate. So there was a place that they could go to to get in the gate, to get in the shelter. Now, there's nothing said past this about what was on the other side of the gate. Although Jesus does say, if you look over the fence, he doesn't say it in those terms, but he says, if you look over the fence, you can see some of those that are okay. You can see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then you can see those coming from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they'll be there and you won't. And he said, you'll gnash your teeth and you'll grind your teeth because you didn't get in. So he, he gave a picture like that, uh, basically, and we'll, we'll uh, refer to that in just a moment. But the, but the point is, he said, strive to enter into the, into the gate that's called straight. Look for the gate. Look for the gate. Have you ever looked for a place that you we're not familiar with and had to find some mile post along the way to find it. And all of a sudden, you maybe you're in a car and you're looking for a certain spot, certain destination, and you drive by it. You don't see it. You go by. Well, uh, that's what he's telling him. He said, don't, don't drive by this gate. In chapter 7 of Matthew, in verse 13 and 14, he says, Enter in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Let's, let's just keep in mind that he's talking to these people about their situation. 
So he's telling them, you need to look for the gate. And be sure, and he's, he's telling them, it's not the big one, it's the small one. It's the gate that you'll probably pass up. But he says, strive to enter into that gate. Find that gate. So they're looking for shelter. They don't want to be lost. They don't want to be judged. How do we get out? How do we get out of this? And so Jesus said, enter into the straight gate. Forget the wide one. Forget the big one. Enter into the straight one. Now the gate that he's talking about is himself. Jesus is the gate. Now these fellows are saying, are there few that be, few of us that are going to be saved? Are there few that are saved? And he's saying, get in the straight gate. Okay, in John 14, verse 6, he tells them, how straight is that gate? How narrow is it? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Now, that's pretty straight, isn't it? You can't get in. Well, they're going to say, well, we're Abraham's children. We can get in through our genealogy. We we have credentials. We We have representation. Abraham, Isaac. Jacob, all these fellows are our family. We can get in. He's saying, wait a minute, there's a gate. And there's you have to go through this gate. Because if you don't go through the gate, you don't get in. Okay. In uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, he says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knows the Son but the Father. Neither knows any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So Jesus is issuing an ultimatum. These people must believe that he is the Son of God. They must accept the fact that he's the one that gives them entrance into safety. So that gate is extremely narrow at that point. You can't get in any other way. There's no other access to salvation except through me. So, what are they going to say? Jesus is going to say, he's going to tell them in in, uh, Luke chapter 13, he's going to tell them that uh, when the master shuts the door, you can't get in. Now that's pretty decisive, isn't it? I'm going to, no, he's, he's actually saying that he's the master, basically. Because later on he says, some of you will say to me. So he's talking about the fact that he's the master. He's got the key. And the book of Revelation says that Jesus is the key of David. So he's got the key. He's got the key of life. And he says, I'm going to shut the door. And when I shut the door, you can't get in. But he says, some of you are going to come up and knock on the door. We're going to, you're going to pound on that door and try to get in. You're going to try to get in. And he's going to say, you can't get in. I'm not going to let you in. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? He's, and you, you know they they have a they have a reply to that. They believe that they had a right to be included among the saved, and their arguments for inclusion involve the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. Now we're not so familiar with that sort of argument today, but in the in the time of Jesus, they were making that argument. They were making that that proposition to Jesus and saying, "Wait a minute, we have a right." We have a right because Abraham is our father. When John the Baptist first started preaching, he preached preached repentance. And that repentance involved the fact that there is a judgment coming and you need to get ready. And John looked out among the crowd and he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Say not within yourself, you have Abraham to your father. For God is able to raise up children unto Abraham of these stones. So they, he said, don't, don't make the argument that you're Abraham's children. You need to repent. You need to repent. Their reply to Jesus at this point was, no, we have a right to be there. And they made two points. The first was, we let you teach in our streets. We, we gave you permission to teach in our streets. And you ate and drank with us. We, we got together and we had, we had congenial meals together. That's what they said. When, they, when, they, when they're knocking on the door and Jesus is saying you can't come in, they're saying, wait a minute, Lord. Don't you remember us? Don't you remember me? He said, I, I don't know you. Whence you are, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. But they said, wait a minute. We have eaten and drunk in your presence, and you've taught in our streets. That was generous of them, wasn't it? You've eaten and drunk in my presence. Well, he did. In John chapter 2, Jesus went to a wedding in Cana of Galilee with his disciples. And obviously, there were Jews, people like this, that were with him at that point. So they knew that he'd been there. They were maybe at that same, same party. In Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 8, verse 9, Jesus was invited into the house of a publican, Levi, who later was known as Matthew. He was invited into his house, and he ate with him, and then those Jews that didn't like that idea complained that he was eating with publicans and sinners. But they're saying here, these fellows are saying, wait a minute, we ate and drank with you. Where? Was it at Levi's house? If it was, you were complaining about it. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, at Simon's house, you remember that one? When, when Simon invo- invited Jesus to come into his house and have a meal, he brought him in, and he brought him in as someone who's way beneath their class and their stature. And while Jesus was there, a woman came in, Mary Magdalene, and she began to wash his feet with her tears, wipe them with the hairs of her head, and anointed his head with oil from a precious alabaster box. And you know what happened? Those who were eating and drinking with Jesus said, if you had known who this was, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have let her touch you. So sure, he ate and drank with them. He did, didn't he? But they, they weren't really happy with how he went about his affairs. He ate and drank. And, and they, they didn't like that, but they, they're using that argument now. and said, no, Lord, we need, to be, we need to get in. Let us in because we ate and drank with you. We were at the same parties you were at. We were at the same banquet you were at. So don't you remember us? Well, they also, he said, uh, we let you teach in our streets. We gave you access. Not that they did what he wanted them to do because later on he'll say, uh, you, you're, you're workers of iniquity, which means you work lawlessness. So these fellows were not really followers of Jesus with faith because he's saying, you, you, you're workers of iniquity. You, you're, not, you're not genuine. But they're saying, we, we allowed you to teach in our streets. Sure they did. And Jesus taught some things that they didn't like. And when they didn't like it, then they turned on him for it. But Jesus was one who who straightforward stated the truth 
and then let the results take care of themselves. So in Matthew chapter 6, for instance, he said, You have heard that they have been said of them of old time, Thou shalt not, but I say unto you. Then he, then he de- delineated his teaching. So the point is that these people were hearing what Jesus was saying in the streets or on the mountaintop or at the riverside or whatever it may be. But they were saying, We gave you the right to come into our streets and teach. Therefore, we need to be sheltered. We need to get under the wings of the Father. We need to be in here, when the, when the judgment comes, we need to be in here safe and secure. Matthew 15, at verse 10, after he, Jesus was teaching, and he taught that, uh, that these fellows, the scribes and Pharisees, were teaching that uh, a person had to uh, wash their hands in a certain ritualistic way before they ate, then Jesus said, well, you know what? You're, you're, uh, you're violating the commandment of God by your tradition. And then the disciples came to him later and said, Lord, wait a minute. You know what? Uh, you, you've offended these guys. They didn't like what you were saying. Matthew 15, verse 20, 10 says, He called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of his mouth, that defiles a man. Then came his disciples and said, Unto him, know you not that the Pharisees were offended who heard this saying? They didn't like what you were saying. So these fellows are not saying, we really enjoyed your sermons, Lord. They're saying, we let you teach in our streets. We were generous and we were accommodating. You could teach in our streets. Now let us in. Let us in. John chapter 7, verse 46. The uh, priests, Levites and priests, had uh, sent officers of their own military and sent the officers to get Jesus and bring him back in custody. And when they went to hear what Jesus was saying, they were so impressed that they didn't bring him back. And so when they came back in, in John chapter 7, verse 46, and the, uh, the, the priest asked, well, where is he? Where, where, didn't you get him? And they said, they, they said, never man spoke like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who know not the law are cursed. I spoke openly unto the world, Jesus said. I ever taught in the synagogue and the temple where the Jews always uh, resort, and in secret have I said nothing. And they are saying in Luke chapter 13 when they come to Jesus and are pounding on the door and saying, Lord, let us in. And Jesus is saying, no, I shut the door. They're saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We let you, we let you teach in our streets. You ought to, you ought to, that ought to count for something. Let us in. We, we ate and drank with you. Sure they did. But does that mean that, that he should open the gates and let them in? No. He said, I don't know you. He said, leave. I don't know you. This is probably one of the harshest statements in the entire four Gospels. No, you can't come in. Leave. I never knew you. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? In your name done many wonderful works. Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. These people that are now trying to get under the shelter of Jesus Christ 
are probably the ones that were riding on the, on the Jesus float during his time. They were there. They were on his coattails. They were, they were, hang, they were hangers on. They were, they were around, but they really weren't committed to him. But when, when things began to get very tough and very hard, and they began to think, you know, you know, maybe there is something to this man from Galilee. Maybe we better curry his favor. Maybe we better, better get in with him while the getting's good. And he's saying, and again, what a, what a harsh statement. He said, I've shut the door and I've locked it. And you're not getting in. Wait, Lord, wait, wait, wait. We're in your rooting gallery. And we did a lot of great things for you. Matthew says that they said, we've cast out devils in your name. We've prophesied in your name. Well, they were, they were riding the reputation of Jesus, basically. Because Jesus said two things about this type of people. The first thing he said, of course, was that they were lawless. They weren't, they weren't really uh, under his authority. They were following their own counsel. And they were following their own desires, doing what they wanted to do, wherever it was beneficial to them. That's what they were doing. And yet, there were some who had actually listened to what Jesus was saying, followed his, his, his reputation, followed his adventures, and they were doing some of the things, saying the same things he was doing because they believed in him. So you have a, a text in Luke chapter 9, verse 49 and 50, that says, John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and we forbade him because he followed not with us. And Jesus' reply was, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. So this, this man was doing the same thing Jesus was doing because he believed in Jesus. And he was following his example of life. And John was saying, wait a minute, he needs to be in our group or we can't let him do that. And Jesus said, no, he does not against us is for us. In sharp contrast then are those who are not for him but working against him. And so in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, the text says, He that is not with me, which means not committed to him, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathers not with me scatters abroad. These other fellows were with him, and they were gathering with him, maybe not in his company, but here you've got a group of people that are not with him at all. They're against him. And he's saying they're, they're, uh, they're scattering. Their reaction to Jesus is seen in the next expression. And I want to remind you that I'm talking about those people at that time. And they're looking at Jesus, and they're, they're, for some reason they've decided that he has something going for him. And they're asking the question, how do we get in? Are there few of us, basically, that are saved? And Jesus is saying, strive to get in the straight gate. Because many will, will try and won't make it. And then, he, of course, he's already told them that there's a narrow gate and a, a big gate. And go in the narrow one with the narrow way. But here it says, they will stand at the door and knock and say, Lord, we want in. And then they make their arguments. And Jesus said, I don't know you. And then he said, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I don't know you. Depart from me. And then, this is the area where I think they were looking over the fence. Here's the gate. They can't get through the gate. 
But that, I think they were looking over the fence and seeing what's going on. And he says that this text, he says, he said, uh, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Wow. You're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. We have to keep in mind that whenever we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about Jesus being the epitome of the kingdom. He was the person of the kingdom. So wherever Jesus is, the kingdom is. So they're going to look across the fence and they're going to see Jesus with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and those from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And it's going to, it's going to bother them. They're going to say, no, that's not right. That's not right that those fellows should be there and we're not. Okay. Gnashing of teeth. Wailing, grinding of teeth because they're not included. The reaction of Jesus, reaction to Jesus is one of, of agony. Now, let's, let's look at this. In all of these, this text is talking about people that live then. But whenever we're reading the Bible, reading the New Testament in particular, and we're reading the Gospel of Christ, which is the power of God and salvation, we're reading the Word of God, which is quick and powerful. It is, it is alive, Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 12. The Word of God is alive and it touches us. So I ask myself the question, Bill, where do you see yourself in this thing? Does this, by extension, can I see myself here? Can I see that what Jesus, is He telling me the same thing? Is He saying, look for the narrow gate? Seek it? See, see if you can find it? I think he is. So what I'm saying is, now then, Jesus is saying strive to enter in, which means I have to look for it. I have to look for the gate. These fellows had Jesus with them at that time. All they had to do was lift up their eyes and look on him and say, Lord, just like Peter did, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Just like Thomas did when he said, my Lord and my God. Okay, they could look at Jesus and say, He's the way. And Jesus told him several times, He said, I am the door of the sheep. No man can come except through Me. So they had been hearing that all along. Now then the question is, how does that apply to me? I have to see the fact that I cannot get into that company that was behind the gate. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus those from the north and the south and the east and the west, all the nations gathered around Jesus. I can't get there unless I find the gate. I've got to find the gate. And the gate is Jesus Christ. So if I'm looking, and that, that's what I'm doing, I'm looking for Him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Matthew six thirty three, and all these things shall be added unto you. So what I'm doing is, I'm looking for Jesus. So let's say I'm looking at a church and I'm looking for Jesus in a church. Well, I'm going to have to find out whether or not they preach Jesus. I, I, can't, I can't get into behind the gate unless I get through Jesus. If they're preaching some other man, some other doctrine, some other principle, then that which elevates Jesus Christ, that's not the gate. That's not the gate I need. I need to find Him. Now, all I have to do is check the New Testament and I can see who He is. And I can look in the Old Testament and I see the prophets talking about Him coming. 
But I have to find him by finding him in the word. Because the, because the word is the vehicle by which Jesus presents himself to the world. So now then, I'm looking for Jesus. And he says, he says, Bill, here's what you have to do. You have to seek. Matthew 7, 13, 14. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened. I've got to look. Now, here I am wanting to get in. I know there's a judgment coming. And I, I don't want to miss that point because these fellows were concerned that a judgment was coming. And they were, they were under tension at that time. And I'll tell you what, we're under tension the same way. There is a judgment coming. And our tension is that when the judgment comes, Romans chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse, uh, no, see, Romans chapter 12, verse 10 through 12, talks about the judgment. We'll all stand before the judgment throne of God to give an account for our deeds. And we, we know that, that, that uh, there is a judgment coming when we'll have to get, give an account to God for all that we've done. So there is a tension in our life too. And we're warned by the New Testament writers that we need to be awake and need to be aware and not, not to be drunken in the night, that we need to be sober, we need to be cautious because Jesus is going to return. So there's a tension that we're feeling as well, and that tension is we will actually face a judgment. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the books being opened and the book of life opened, and we'll be judged out of those things written in the book. So I'm under tension. And that tension says there's going to be a judgment coming and I need to get somewhere safe. And the way I get to somewhere safe is I've got to go through a gate because safety lies beyond the gate. And the gate is Jesus Christ. He's the one, he, he's the one that, is with, is, that has access. I mentioned the fact that it was Romans chapter 12. It's actually Romans chapter 14. Verse 10 through 12 that talks about the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 also says that it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. So I know that there's ozone in the air. That there's a thunderstorm coming. There's a storm coming. And I know that I need to be safe, somewhere safe. So I want to be with Jesus and where Jesus is so that when the judgment comes, I will be found acceptable before God. The, the thing is, when we talk about finding the gate, we have to talk about looking for it. We have to look for it. That goes contrary to what a lot of folks think about salvation. A lot of folks think, well, I'm a lost sheep, because the Bible talks about lost sheep. Luke chapter 15 talks about three different types of individuals lost. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But a lot of folks like to think, well, I'm lost. Let somebody come find me. I'll just wait until somebody finds me. And then they can bring me home to God. But Jesus said, seek. He said, look. Look for it. So if we look for him, we have to look for where he is and we have to find him. If, if somebody claims that somebody else is the Son of God and puts themselves on that throne in that position. And there are churches that do that. We, we don't want to uh, be negative about other churches, but when somebody says that somebody is on the same level as Jesus Christ, that's wrong. So I, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to be around that. I want to find Jesus on the throne. He's the one. 
And I have to seek Him. I have to look for Him. I have to find Him. And I'm going to find a narrow gate because He is. That, that's that's something that that we need to understand. That that He is one way. Jesus is one way. There's one God, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus is one. And so He's He set forth the uh, the narrow way for us to follow. And we need to be prepared. So what I'm doing is I'm looking back at this text in Luke chapter 13. And I'm saying, okay. Jesus said, I need to find the gate. So I began to look. And I look through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this, this is the only book that reveals Jesus, by the way, and reveals salvation. So I'm, I'm looking at the book, and I'm, I'm comparing everything that I see by the book, and I'm trying to find Him. So that's the first thing I do. And then He says, A knock and it shall be opened unto you. Now these fellows knocked and it was not opened. Why? He said, because you are workers of iniquity. You're lawless. You're not willing to accept my authority. And yet Jesus told the apostles, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and teach all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And Lord, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the earth. And then he says, be ready. Be ready. Be ready for what? Be ready for Jesus coming. Be ready for Him coming into your life. If we, if we uh, are just nonchalant and cavalier about our life with God, and that's, that's, that's the problem that, that uh, we have in the religious community and in the, in the world itself. We just don't think it's that important. It's just not that essential for us to be concerned about Jesus. But Jesus said, that we have to be ready because the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Luke chapter 12 at verse 40. Now that's not necessarily about the judgment. That's about coming into your life. He'll, he'll enter your life, but you need to be ready. You need to look for Him because when you find Him, He'll, he'll come right away. But there's also a judgment, obviously. And that judgment will, is a, a time when all the nations will be gathered before God and He will sort them out, the sheep from the goats, and He'll bring the sheep in from His right hand and they'll dwell with Him eternally and the goats will be sent into everlasting punishment. In Second Peter chapter 3, at verse 8 and 9, it says, Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, so I'm saying, well, he hasn't come so far. So I, I, can, I can rest. I don't have to be tense about him coming. I don't have to be under tension. I don't have to worry about judgment. I don't have to worry about any of these things. My friends, the Bible says we need to be ready. We need to be ready because he comes at an hour that we think not. And I'm afraid... As these fellows did, they said, "Look, open the door, Lord. Let us in." I, I, you know, there's so many people who believe that everybody's going to go to heaven that it's it's really it's not even humorous. But these fellows weren't going. They said, "You're not coming in." They made the argument. Wait a minute. We let you teach in our streets, and we we ate with you. It's not enough, my friend just to let someone teach about Jesus and you tolerate that. 
that you just listen to it. Oh yeah, they're Jesus freaks. They're just telling me about Jesus. I don't want to hear. Them. I don't want to hear that. I'll, I'll tolerate. I'll listen to it, but I'm not really going to listen hard. I'll tolerate someone praying in our, in our presence. I'll tolerate somebody that quotes the scripture. I'll tolerate that. That's what these guys are saying. We let you teach in our streets. Therefore, save us. Save us from judgment. What are we saying? I'm looking at it from my perspective, and I'm saying, okay, Bill, what am I saying? Am I saying, Lord, I deserve to be with you in, in the party that you're having? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, those from the north and the south and the east and the west, all the nations, I want to be on that party. I want to be in there with you. Why, Bill? Well, because I said grace at the table. We ain't drank together. Saying grace is really not what the Bible talks about praying, but sometimes we think, well, we tolerate Jesus at our table because we give Him thanks and then forget about Him. But we let Him eat with us, and so we're going to say, Lord, don't you remember I used to pray before I ate? Sometimes. Thanksgiving for sure. Christmas, definitely. But I've been with you. Am I going to say that? Is, Is Jesus going to look at me and say, oh yeah, Bill, I remember you. I remember one time we ate together. We had a meal together. Because you mentioned me before the meal. That's what I'm concerned about in terms of my relationship to God. My relationship to God has to be a total immersion in Jesus Christ. I mean completely involved with Him. Not just partially, but completely overwhelmed by Him. Jesus is not a hobby. He's not a pastime. He's not someone that we use to our advantage. Jesus is life, and He's my life. Paul said, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. It's a total, overwhelming, complete immersion in Jesus Christ. He overwhelms our total being. Christ in me, the hope of eternal life. He's the central character in my life. He's not the one sitting in the audience watching me perform on the stage. He is a central character. He and I are in this together. And we're together 24-7. Now, I hope that when, when we look at, the, look at it that way, that we won't be like these guys that came up and say, Lord, bang, 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 open, open. We had some meals together. You were taught. We heard some of your lessons. Good lessons. No. That's not going to get it. So I'm going to be very cautious that I try to make sure that Jesus overwhelms me and I would urge you to let Him overwhelm you and consume you your whole life. He is life. God bless you and help you reach that conclusion yourself.